Hello, hello. Hello. See, I like it when we do it like that. That's what she said. And welcome back to tax fraud and whatever else we were talking about like a minute ago. You guys, this is going to be the most unhinged episode. I don't know what's in the air today. I don't know what's going on. Caffeine, probably. I mean, I am two energy drinks deep for the day, so that could have something to do with it. Um, We were talking about something before. Uh, Jamie recommended tax fraud as a solution. Uh, I didn't realize... So if this show becomes just me, it's because Jamie's in jail for tax fraud. Just want I didn't know. Just want it doesn't everybody count to know. If I don't realize. Mm, that's anyway. Oh god. How are you, Kate? I <laughs> I am around, you know. Living around the world. Living the dream. How are you? Yeah. <laughs> um as per usual, better than you, I suppose. That's my favorite thing. I really want you guys to know that, like, especially in the last three months, a lot has been going on behind the scenes. <laughs> and every single time I ask Jamie how she's doing, she goes, nah, better than you. And I just think that's the funniest shit ever. Like, I'm not going to say it's amazing. But it's so funny. But it's nothing compared to yours. It's so funny. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that your life is bad sometimes. <laughs> I can just be here to support you. Exactly. And that's... Love you. There we go. See? Look at that. Kindness. Well, I am excited to get back into the swing of things with this episode. Yeah, should we just jump right into it? Because you've got a lot to say. I have a lot to say. I'm going to jump on my soapbox for this entire episode... And I recommend you all buckle up. Chichunk. I'm Kate. And I'm Jane. And this is Creeps and Coffee. A show where we talk about the dark parts of the world around us. Cryptids, conspiracies, things that go bump in the night. And the crimes behind the scariest creatures of all. Humans. Join us as we take a look at the stories sure to give you the creeps. Pull up a seat. Grab a coffee and let's have a chat. Uh, yep. Okay. I thought that Chachunk was you going into the theme song, and then when you stopped, I was like, Ugh. "That was supposed to be me putting a." I realized on. after. Oh. There's a hair stuck to my. Of mouth. course, he's a Gemini. I hate you so much. <laughs> Sorry. Well. Get into her, Kate. Oh, I'm so ready for this. Okay. So, I forgot how much I enjoyed true crime episodes. Not because of the content. I'm going to put that out there right now because I realize how bad that just sounded. Yeah. (laughs) But because there's so much history and psychology involved in every crime case. And in case you guys haven't picked up on it yet, those are my two favorite things. So, the case that we're going to be covering today is one of the, I'd say, like, more famous serial killer cases but at the same time I feel like it's one of those that you don't really hear talked about very much there was a Netflix documentary that came out a little while ago that I think brought a little bit more light to the case and got people talking about it a little bit more than they had um sort of outside of the true crime community that was called like the sons of Sam or whatever yeah 
It was actually, it was a really good documentary. I enjoyed it. But, um, like I said, I think this is one of those cases where people have heard of it, um, but they don't necessarily know the details surrounding it. And, I mean, that's fair. There's a lot that goes into true crime cases like this, especially ones that are so intricate and sort of all over the place that it definitely makes it harder to follow. But what we're going to be talking about today is the son of Sam, otherwise known as David Berkowitz, his real name. Uh, But yeah, we're going to kind of go through the journey of his life and unfortunately to the point where he decided to end the lives of others. Yeah. So before we jump into it, uh, I'll say what we tend to say for every true crime episode. Um, We're going to start off with a little bit of background to get a little bit more of an understanding on who David Berkowitz is, what his life was like before it all kind of went down the drain and turned crazy. Not because I think he deserves to have his story told, because I I don't think anyone who's committed crimes like this deserves any sort of um, recognition, I guess. But because I think from a psychological standpoint, it's really interesting to see the nature versus nurture aspect of criminals like this. Because we'll talk about it a little bit, but it's not as though Berkowitz had a rough childhood. He didn't... Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody's childhood is perfect. There's going to be negatives in some cases, and his circumstances weren't perfect by any means. But it's not the typical circumstances where you would imagine someone is capable of the atrocities that he committed based solely on their circumstances. There has to be some sort of natural psychopathy or sociopathy behind his reasonings for things, because honestly, it's just... It was the nature, not the nurture. Exactly. (laughs) Starting from the beginning. June 1st, 1953. Like Jamie said, Gemini. Gemini. I don't know what that means, but... It's it's, the zodiac sign. Well, thank you, dumbass. I got that part. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me... Let me... Let me... Yeah, you you give some insight into that, because uh, I know my own sign... I know the one star sign that I don't like. And that's pretty much all I got. Um, I don't know what any of it means. But a lot of people are interested in that. Well, the Geminis are a, like, dual sign because it means, like, the two faces of the Gemini. Sure. Um, And especially because he's a male, it means that in his personality, he was... Uh, uh, like inconsistent Um, they can be moody sarcastic and impulsive Um, the men may act childish at times and are easily attracted to superficial beauty isn't that all men (laughs) sorry about that did I let that slip sorry Um, maybe Mm. (laughs) Uh, it also says Gemini men can also be outgoing to a fault Mm. Interesting. There are good Gemini traits, but I was just letting y'all know some of the bad ones <laughs> because he's not a great person. What? Crazy. And that was my contribution. You go. <laughs> Amazing. So, this Gemini is born. 
Originally, (laughs) (laughs) he's named Richard David Falco. He was born in Brooklyn, New York to... New York. Yep, New York. Jamie, this is a side note. This is what I mean. This is going to be the most unhinged. The ADHD is so strong today, it's insane. But I used to do a Brooklyn accent. And it used to make Jamie laugh more than anything. And she'll try to do it after me. And I think it's the funniest thing in the world. Is it the the why you do a shit or whatever? Yeah, yeah. I used to watch (laughs) Real Housewives. And my favorite line I've ever heard was, you keep talking to me like that, you're going to get your jaw wired. You keep talking to me like that, and you're going to get your jaw wired. See, Jamie turns into this, like, old mobster who's got, like, that (laughs) jokey twist to it. I like it. It reminds me a lot of, like, Joe Pesci. Thank you. Who's that? I'm not even going (laughs) to... We're going to move right Sorry. on from that. Anyway, so, Brooklyn, New York. He's born to unwed parents who had split up very shortly before his birth. And it was oh, decided Lord. that, based on their circumstances, that he would be placed for adoption. They were young parents, not together. They knew that they couldn't give him a proper life. So, up for adoption he went. Uh, Richard was adopted by a couple named Nathan and Pearl Berkowitz, who were owners, or I guess employees at least, of a hardware store. They were Jewish, and they would decide to keep his names, but they switched his first and middle names. So this is how he ended up with the moniker of David Berkowitz. I didn't even notice. (laughs) I was I was expecting you to say something for you to be like Richard, but nope. I didn't notice. I thought they said the same thing. Nope, not at all. <laughs> but anyway, this is how we end up with David Berkowitz. Um, it was said by a lot of people that he was a really smart kid, but it was pretty clear from an early age that this level of intelligence would cause him to get in trouble. He was one of those kids where it just seemed like he wasn't stimulated enough and he was kind of sneaky mm. in his intelligence. Um, despite him being involved in petty larceny and a lot of pyromania as a child, he was never... Those are like classic red flags. What do you mean? Thank you. (laughs) But he was never in any legal trouble. He was never punished at school for this stuff. They just took it as, okay, well, he's not being stimulated enough. It's fine. Unfortunately, this would only serve to fuel his negative behaviors in the future because he clearly had seen that He wasn't getting caught for this stuff. He wasn't getting in trouble for it. So why couldn't he do worse things? Why couldn't he do more? Um, And Jamie's right. Those are classic signs to watch out for as a child. Um, They're big uh, considerations for something called conduct disorder, which is like the childhood version of psychopathy. Um, But if that stuff is not dealt with, it's kind of like drugs, right? You reach a point where you have a tolerance for things. You need, you need more. You need more you intensity. Need you, yeah, you need to find something more intense to get that high. And unfortunately, these... Not to quote criminal minds or anything. Please, <laughs> please quote criminal minds all the time. Oh, that's another thing, guys. Jamie's finally watching criminal minds. It's so good. I'm like 20 years late. I've been telling really her good. since we were kids that it's my favorite show. And she's been like, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, whatever. 
And then I get a text from her that's like, oh my god, have you seen Criminal Minds? Because it was weird to have a 10-year-old recommending a show about murderers to me. You're right, but look where we've ended up. (laughs) Negative behaviors fueled his future negative behaviors, which would be even more intense. Unfortunately, by the age of 14, um, David's mother, Pearl, would pass away from breast cancer. He was really, really close with his mother, and he didn't take his loss well. I mean, that's something that most people aren't going to take well anyway, especially at age 14. But he took it really, really hard. Um, He took it especially hard because his father had a new relationship and was sort of starting to move on with his life a little bit more. David did not like his stepmother, did not like that he felt like his father was, I guess, forgetting about his mother. So he took that very personally, and it left a really strained relationship with him and his father, which makes for not an ideal household vibe, I guess. Move out. Well, at at 14, that's not really an option. Oh, still he's 14. Got it. (laughs) Um, By age 18... So 1971 now, David did exactly that and was like, okay, I'm 18 now, I can move out. Uh, And he joined the U.S. Army, where he would serve in South Korea. He was considered a proficient marksman in the military and would be honorably discharged three years later. So he did a tour. I believe he also served like locally and did some stuff around the States, but I didn't look too much into that. So, following his military career, um, when that ended in 1974, he would decide that he was going to track down his birth mother. And he found a young Jewish woman named Betty Falco, who was like, yeah, that's me. I'm your mom. She would tell him the whole reasoning for his adoption, which was basically the illegitimacy of the circumstances and the fact that she was unwed and it was a big deal. Um, And she would also tell him that his birth father, who he was also trying to find, um, had recently passed away. So this would feel like a failure for David, that he couldn't have found him in time. He wouldn't get the opportunity. So it was a really intense disappointment for him, um, which is understandable. I can imagine that would be a really... um, a really hard thing to process. I know in my own family, we've had uh, a child in the family that was adopted out that we didn't know about, who mm, right. by the time she found us, um, the family member that she was searching for had passed away. So I know that she struggled a lot with that. So it's not, not by any means a, a simple situation. There's lots of excitement that comes from finding your loved one, I guess. Um, But then there's the grief of losing them at the same time. So David really, really struggled with this. He had a pretty average relationship with Betty for quite a while, but eventually he would lose contact with her. I mean, you haven't been in someone's life for, at this point, it would have been 21 years. So it's not as if just because there's that biological component, it's going to all come together. Um, yeah. They didn't have a negative relationship by any means. It just wasn't a mother and son relationship that he was hoping it would be because he no longer had his adopted mother. I think he realized that that wasn't going to replace that relationship, so it became a little bit 
hard to maintain a connection. But he found, he found his own footing. Uh, he sort of settled into a new life. He returned to New York, and he got a job as a letter sorter for the U.S. Postal Service, which always makes me think of, like, that scene in Elf. I was just thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that was a real job. Yeah, it, well, it is. <laughs> but... Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but this job allowed him to afford his own apartment in Yonkers, which is my favorite borough of New York, just because I think that's the most fun thing to say. Look at those big old Yonkers. Why do you think it's my favorite? I take so much, like, 12-year-old joy in it. (laughs) Anyway, so he's sort of settled into his own routine, his own life. And his co-workers from the USPS and his neighbors would describe him as a loner. They never saw him with anybody. He kept to himself, didn't really have neighborly relationships, but they said... There was nothing really about him that screamed future serial killer, unfortunately, because that would have saved a whole lot of stress. Yeah. But anyway, that, so that's that brings us to where David was when all of this started. So America. Yes. Unfortunately. New York, New York. New York, New York. New York, New York. See, I'm she sorry. Goes, she goes high pitched. I don't know what happens. It's like a. It's <laughs> literally sounds like a gangster from like the fifties every time. I've been to New York, and I feel like I'm insulting everybody there. You are New York. One day, one day you'll get it. New York. Anyway, so before we get into stuff about the crimes, I do also want to say, I'm not gonna go into major details with the crimes as per usual. No. I like to give this disclaimer every time we talk about true crime, because you never know who's listening to the episode. So, sorry if you've heard this a million times, but the point of talking about true crime is not to talk about the disgusting details of things. It's not to talk about the terrible ways in which these people had their lives taken from them. These are victims who have families, who have loved ones, who still care about them and always will. There's plenty of people who will give the gory details, but... Not us. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily important to dwell on that. With that out of the way, we are going to start chatting about the murders. So the reason that David Berkowitz is... I was going to say a household name, but that's fucked up. Is it? Um, it's a known person, I guess? Yeah is the, like, most conservative way I can put it, is because of a series of murders he committed in New York in the 70s. So most accounts of his murder spree state that it all started in 1976. But if you ask David Berkowitz in his accounts of his murders, he states that his killing actually started seven months prior in December of 1975. So this was the Mm. first time he attempted to do anything. So on Christmas Eve of that year, because what's what's nicer than a little Christmas kill spree? on Christmas. (laughs) Um, David attempted to kill two young girls with a hunting knife in the Bronx. So the first, and this is honestly, I wanted to include this because it shows how 
just disconnected from emotion David was. Um, but this is probably as graphic as I'll get. Um, the first of the two girls was a 15-year-old named Michelle Foreman. She was repeatedly stabbed in the head and torso. And after his arrest and everything happened, um, Berkowitz was interviewed by a bunch of journalists and tr- true crime authors, like so many killers are. Um, mm-hmm. So this quote is from a book called Hunting Humans. Wow. Berkowitz said about her, um, her stabbing, I've never heard anyone scream like that. I kept stabbing and nothing would happen. So that just, like I said, that just goes to What do you mean? Like he felt no emotion. He felt nothing? He felt nothing. He just kept stabbing, waiting for her to die. Which is fuck. Maybe like don't stab people then. (laughs) It's really not that difficult to not stab someone personally. I've done it my whole life. As have I. And I plan to continue. Oh my god. But anyway. (laughs) um, Michelle would be hospitalized for a week. But because... She lived? Well, hold on. Oh, oh, oh. Because she was a minor, and because this was such a high-profile circumstance at the end of things, most of the records of her experiences have not been released. So it's not actually clear what became of her after this. Um, We don't know for sure if she lived or died. Uh, We don't know anything. And I think, personally, I think that's the best option um i think it's good that if she did survive that she gets to continue her life privately um and if she didn't survive her family's not being bombarded with sort of the the glorification of all of this so Hmm. okay no matter what we just know that it happened we don't really know what the end goal was um the second victim in this attack was never identified Um, because we don't have identification, we assume that she died. We don't know where the body was. We don't know what happened to it. We just know Mm. that there was a second victim who would have been around the same age as Michelle. Berkowitz, being the fuckhead that he is, considered this a failure because he didn't kill them both on the spot. And he blamed his hunting knife for that reason. He blamed the fact that he had to do the stabbing and that he, no matter how many times he stabbed, it didn't work. So he would swear off using a knife for the future. Uh, for each of his consecutive attacks, he would use a forty-four caliber bulldog revolver. Hence the name also the forty-four caliber killer. Exactly. So that would be his staple before we realized that the son of Sam was a thing. He was mm-hmm. the forty-four caliber killer. So then we get to July 29th, 1976, when everyone sort of collectively agrees that his real spree started. So 18-year-old Donna Loria and 19-year-old Jody Valenti were sitting in Jody's car when Berkowitz walked up and opened fire. He fired three shots and then ran away like the piece of shit that he is. Um, Coward. Yeah. Donna was unfortunately killed instantly. But Jody survived, and she was able to provide police with a description. The man was unknown to her, but multiple people in the neighborhood, including Donna's father, because they were sitting outside of Donna's house, 
mentioned mm-hmm. having seen a yellow car driving around with a man matching the description that Jody had given them. So they were able to come up with a police sketch based on the description, and they didn't think, as bad as it is to say, they didn't think much of it. They just considered this a random attack, which unfortunately happens every so often. Um, They kept an eye on it, but they didn't really do much from there. A few months later, on October 23rd of 1976, it happened again. Carl De Niro and Rosemary Keenan were sitting in their car in the community of Flushing. Ew. New York has weird names. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry if you live in Flushing. (laughs) Berkowitz decided he was going to strike again. They stated that all of a sudden the windows in their car were shattered. They were just sitting there, catching up, and all of a sudden the windows were exploding. And because of this, Rosemary immediately drove off to avoid any further scare or injury. And the adrenaline was really keeping them both going. It wouldn't be until they stopped for help that they realized not only had they been shot at, but that Carl had actually been shot in the head. (gasps) Exactly. No, that was a good reaction. That's what I wanted. Oh my god. Although part of his skull was shattered... Carl and Rosemary both survived the attack. Unfortunately, they hadn't seen where the shots had come from. So they didn't get a description of the attacker. Because it was just all of a sudden. troopers, though. Right? Can you imagine? (laughs) Oh, yeah, I got shot in the head. But, yeah, I'll go for beers next week. (laughs) You know what, though? If I was Carl, I'd use that every goddamn day of my life. I'd be like... Oh, yeah. I'd go take advantage. I'd of go it. for the beers with my friends, and I'd be like, "Oh, I just you know, I'm a little strapped for cash with all the medical bills from being shot in the head, you know." Yeah. Just everything would be like, "Oh, I don't feel like it." Remember, remember when I got shot in the head? Yeah. I would milk it so hard. Do it. I, Do you want me to shoot? Oh, never mind. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. If I get shot in the head, Jamie did it. No, 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 no. She's no. committed tax fraud, and now she's trying to kill me. No, 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 no. I just was asking about tax fraud. <laughs> the other stuff is no, no, fine, no. though. I was asking if I was committing tax mm. fraud. So that's different <laughs> than murder. Anyway, back to the actual attempted murder. Um, oh, despite the MOs of the crime, of like this crime and the last one matching the up. Crime of the unsub. <laughs> Sorry. Shut up. Um, despite the fact that they matched up, they were both sitting in a car, both got shot at through the window. It was a forty-four caliber bullet from both shootings. The mm. police did not connect these crimes because they were in Bro. two different boroughs. Which, sure. It's giving Jack the Ripper vibes. Yes, precisely. <laughs> that might be police. a little too similar. But anyway. Should be policing. Maybe. So, about a month after this. It's November 27th, 1976. We've got 16-year-old Donna DeMazi and 18-year-old Joanne, La- I want to say Lamino, because it's Lamino? felt like Domino, but I think it's Lamino. Like Lomain? Sure. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, Donna and Joanne were sitting, not in a car, 
on Joanne's porch just after midnight. They had just gotten out of a car, but they were hanging out on the porch. Out of the blue, the girls were approached by a man dressed in military fatigues who claimed to be seeking directions. The man, who was speaking in a high-pitched fake voice, Mm. all of a sudden pulled out a gun and shot both the girls before running away. Mm. So this random man in a military uniform walks up, is talking like this, and then shoots them. Um, Both of the girls... I just have a question. Yes. If he felt no emotions stabbing that first girl, why did he keep going? This is exa- What was he trying to gain? But this is exactly what I was talking about. It's that need for release. He was at the point where he felt that actual murder and successful murder would give him what he needed. And we'll talk a little and bit it more. Did, or? Well, we'll talk a little bit more about his motivations okay. and where that was coming from. But okay. That's what he was seeking. It, you need that high. It needs to continue. Okay, and, thank you. yeah, happy to help. Thank, um, thank you, teacher. <laughs> both of the girls would thankfully survive, um, but unfortunately, Joanne was left paraplegic. But, I mean, she was alive, so I'm happy for her. Um, Donna and Joanne were both able to describe their attacker because they got such a close look at him. Um, and the police created another composite. Composite. I never know if it's composite or composite. Composite. Anyway, a sketch. They drew a picture of yeah. this mystery man that walked up to the girls. Again, they noted the use of a forty-four caliber gun, but they still failed to connect this with previous crimes. Bruh. Because, again, different borough. So that's three now that are just ignored. So if you ever want to kill people, just do it in different neighborhoods. Apparently. So that was November. Then we get to January 30th of 1977. New year, new Berkowitz. Apparently. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Police were finally starting to think that there may be a connection between attacks. Following the case of Christine Frund and John Deal. So this couple were engaged. Um... They were sitting in their car when they were shot at. John fortunately suffered only minor physical injuries, but the emotional damage would be heavy upon the discovery that Christine had been shot in the head. So next to him, his fiance got shot. She would later pass away from her injuries at the hospital. So this is the first time that the police are noticing that there's a bit of a pattern. There's the 44 caliber bullet, and it's usually women with long, dark hair. Hmm. So they're thinking there might be something here. They don't know. But Does it look like his mother? Jamie's one step ahead of me. <laughs> That's January. Then we go to March. <laughs> There's more, yeah, folks. It's still going. I told y'all. Buckle up. This is going to be a long journey. Yeah. So March 8th, 1977, just one block away from the home of Christine Frund, the last victim, a university student named Virginia Voskarichian, nailed it, was shot. You said it better than I could. I know I did. 
she was shot while she was on her way home. So the 21-year-old Bulgarian woman would die as a result of a gunshot wound to her head, unfortunately. Mm. Immediately following the shooting, neighbors reported seeing two potential perpetrators. So they saw what looked to be a teenager running away, and they saw someone who had matched previous descriptions of Berkowitz running away. This was important because the previous multiple police sketches led detectives to believe that there could be multiple shooters involved. There were just slight differences between the sketches that previous victims had given. And even though they were starting to connect the dots and see a motive, they thought there might be multiple shooters involved in one crime, or one crime spree, I guess. Uh, The teenage boy that was found running from the scene would later be ruled as a witness, simply running for his life. Because he watched someone Fair. get shot. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and then the other, obviously, would be David Berkowitz. They wouldn't know that yet, but we know that. That brings us again in the future. It's now April 17th, 1977. This is an important one. Not that the others weren't important. This is where we really cement what... Berkowitz wanted his crimes to be perceived as. Mm -hmm. So this time, mere blocks away from the first shooting of Donna and Jody, a couple named Alexander, Alexander Esau, I believe is how you say his last name, E-S-A-U, and Valentina Suriani were shot twice in their car. The pair would, unfortunately, both succumb to their injuries before being able to give descriptions to the police. They would pass away um, relatively quickly after the attack. But this time, a letter was left nearby. And this letter was addressed to Captain Joseph Borelli of the New York Police Department. And for the first time... David Berkowitz identified himself as the son of Sam. Mm -hmm. So this letter was, let's see, we've got one, two, three, three and a half pages of ramblings from David Berkowitz. Yeah. And no one knew what to expect when they found this letter, but it would become one of the most haunting pieces of evidence in all of this case. Mm-hmm. Jamie, would you like to read the letter? Alright, so I'm no actor, but um... Also, why are there spelling mistakes? He spelled woman wrong. That is so not the point. He said Weemon. Yeah, he spelled a lot of things wrong. I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hater. <laughs> I am not. But I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little, quote-unquote, brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he he gets mean. (laughs) He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill commands Father Sam. Behind our house, some rest. Mostly young raped and slaughtered their blood drained just bones now papa sam keeps me locked in the attic too i can't get out but i look 
out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I am on a different wavelength than everybody else. Programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police. Police, shoot me first. Shoot to kill or else. Keep out of my way or you will die. Papa Sam is old now. (laughs) He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He has had too many heart attacks. Too many heart attacks. Ugh, me hoot it hoot, sunny boy. I don't know how to say that. I also don't. Because that is how it is written. <laughs> I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in our lady's house. But I'll s- see her soon? I am the monster Beelzebub the chubby behemoth. <laughs> I love to hunt, prowling the streets, looking for fair game, tasty meat. The women of Queens are the prettiest of all. I must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt. My life. Blood for Papa. Mr. Borelli? Borelli. Mr. Borelli? Which, keep in mind, is the NYPD police captain. Police Captain Borelli. Sir, I don't want to kill any more. No, sir. No more. But I must honor thy father. I want... I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to the yahoos. To the people of Queens, I love you. And I want to wish all of you a happy Easter. May God bless you. In this life and in the next, and for now, I say goodbye and good night. Please let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interpreted as bang, 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 bang. Ugh. Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. And that is the psychotic ramblings of a man who has lost all control. I was going to say, what is yeah. that? Yeah. He went from, I'm going to kill all of you to, by the way, love you, happy Easter, mm-hmm. bye. <laughs> so this first letter, because there would be others, this first letter was the first indication that we're dealing with one person. Um, and that there was potentially more to come. Clearly we see a bit of a psychotic break um, from the background that I gave at the beginning of the show. We know that there is no Sam. He's not locked in any rooms. He lives by himself in an apartment in Yonkers. Yeah, where did this come from? That's the million dollar question. Oh. So on the day that this letter was published in the New York Daily News, so newspapers had received copies of this um, because it's insane. And as awful as it is to think about sharing it at at the time because it would give him the power... It's also a big news story, and it's addressed to the people of Queens, the people of New York. So, journalists would want to latch on to that. But they decided not to publish the letter straight away. Um, They teased a little bit that the NYPD had gotten a letter, that the NYPD knew information. Um, So they kept people interested. But on the day that it was actually published... The newspaper sold out within an hour. Whoa. And by the end of the day, when they realized they needed to print more and people were ordering more, it had sold 1.1 million copies. 
And this record God. would only be beaten following the publishing of the news of Berkowitz's arrest. So this was a big deal. People were scared. It was at this point that people started talking a little bit more about what had been going on. People started hearing more details about the crimes. People started um, giving more information in the news. Um, so from this, Jamie will like this part, from this letter, the police were able to come up with a psychological profile of, mm. yeah, of the person that they were trying to deal with. So they knew for a fact he was neurotic. That's obvious to tell from the wild nature of this letter, the back and forth. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Even from like a handwriting analysis perspective, this man was crazy. Yeah, it's like really... It's very childish handwriting. It looks like a kid wrote this, yeah, it's but it's all... a full-grown man. We'll have pictures of the letter up on our Instagram at Creeps and Coffee yep. if you guys want to check it out. But if you look at it, it's written in all uppercase. It looks like someone is like... The best I can describe it is, like, with my students. fisted Yeah, when they hold the pen with the fist and just, like, scratch yeah. it. Um, so, I mean, handwriting analysis is not a strong science by any means. There's lots of... Um, yes, it is. Well, <laughs> there's lots of argument in the forensic community about whether or not that's an accurate description. But from an analytical perspective, in terms of handwriting... You can see the neuroses quite a bit. Um, yeah. As Jamie pointed out so eloquently, there's also a lot of spelling mistakes, um, which is something to be noted because, as we said, people from Berkowitz's early life said that he was a quite intelligent child. Yeah. So it begs the question of what level of, I guess, psychological deterioration was he at at that point? Yeah, why is he misspelling something simple like women mm-hmm. and prettiest? Mm-hmm. So it's it's something to, to look at. Um, they thought also that he could potentially be schizophrenic and could be coming up with these delusions of grandeur and these intense mm-hmm. situations. And they also kind of tied to that schizophrenic, not diagnosis, because you can't diagnose it from a letter, but... Um, hypothesis, I guess. They also believed that he believed he was possessed by demons. So either there is that level of schizophrenia where there's paranoia or there's something else going on. There's a level of, I guess, religious delusion, which can be a completely different circumstance to deal with. But obviously something is not right. So like I said, this wouldn't be the only letter Um, It wouldn't just be the NYPD that received the letters. It would also be newspapers. Specifically, the second letter was sent to a journalist named Jimmy Breslin on May 30th of 1977. So about a month after, a month and a half after um, the murder of Alexander and Valentina, he's sending out another letter. This time it's addressed specifically to this journalist. On the back side of the letter... It said, blood and family, darkness and death, absolute depravity, and .44, which is forty-four caliber. Yeah. So he's clearly paying attention to what the media is saying about him. He's clearly following the descriptions of his crimes. And in the letter, he basically states that he's a reader and a fan of Breslin, 
and his coverage of the murders. And he mocked the NYPD for not being able to find him. And that would be the theme in anything else that came out of it, was him mocking the NYPD, but also begging to be stopped. He said he couldn't do it, they'd have to kill him. But the fact that they couldn't find him was just fueling him even more. What's interesting about this is in the letter specifically to Jimmy, there is no spelling mistakes. The description Mm -hmm. is very eloquently given. There's details of the previous crimes that are connected. It doesn't feel like the first letter. The handwriting looks different and Mm -hmm. stuff. So for a while, people suspected that this letter came from a copycat. Or that the first letter had come from, like, a fake description. Mm. So, my theory on it, and I didn't didn't look too much into it, <laughs> but I think from a psychological perspective, I think that shows his level of intelligence, that he was able to put on this persona of this crazy person mm-hmm. and trick the world when he knew that a letter like that was going to be published. Mm-hmm it almost garners this sense of sympathy because you look at the writing that looks like a child. You see the spelling mistakes and you see a level of innocence that you don't see when someone is brutally describing their own crimes. So I think that kind of goes to show his level of insanity, his level of sociopathy, and his true lack of connection to what he was doing, Um, which is scarier than anything else. I think when they're at a point when they're that self-aware and that manipulative it's scarier than someone who's sort of out of control in my opinion anyway so in one of these letters he also warns about july 29th the reason that this warning for july 29th was so intense and such an important thing was because july 29th was the first anniversary of his first shootings. So people in New York were scared. The police didn't really know what they were supposed to expect. They didn't know what was going on. And particularly the women in the Queens area realized that they were at risk. The men knew that they were, but not one point in any of this had um, Berkowitz gone for a man on his own. He had never gone for two men on their own. If a man was involved in the shooting, it was because he was with a woman who had long, dark hair. That was the calling card that they were looking for. So a lot of these women in the Queens area were cutting their hair short. They were dyeing it blonde. They were trying to do everything they physically could to not seem like Berkowitz's type. People weren't going for drives anymore. They weren't sitting in their cars. There was a distinct level of the unknown, and people were tense. The police were tense, the newspapers were tense, civilians were tense. Nobody knew what was going on because no one knew what to expect. So everybody's up in arms waiting for July 29th, which I'm just now realizing is like almost Jamie's birthday, so that's funny. Yeah. Oh, wait, that's not a good thing. No. (laughs) Unfortunately, even though he had told people to wait. Berkowitz wouldn't wait for the anniversary to make another appearance. No. Instead, on June 26th of 1977, 
he shot Sal Lupo and Judy Placido in their car in Queens. This did not help the fear of the people living in Queens because it happened again. Luckily, they would both survive. So, minor injuries. I mean, I'm sure a lifetime of psychological damage. But mm-hmm. they survived. Um, but they also did not see their attacker. Luckily, witnesses did. So we got another get him, get him. another description that fit David Berkowitz and would sort of add to the puzzle that was building. July 29th comes and goes. New York is feeling tense. They're waiting for the Son of Sam to strike again. Berkowitz waits two days. So two days after the anniversary of the first shooting, on July 31st, 1977, because you got to wait until they're kind of relaxed a little bit, Berkowitz shot again, this time in Brooklyn. So in perhaps the most recognizable, I guess, um, crime in Berkowitz's spree, we have Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Violante. They were in Robert's car, parked near a park, when all of a sudden this guy walks up to the passenger side and starts shooting. Robert suffered... Mm, I always want to, like, I hate saying minor, but non-life-threatening injuries. Yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately, Stacy would pass away at the hospital. But this was the first and only time that Robert went after someone. Not Robert. Oop. This was the first and only time that Berkowitz would go after someone who didn't fit the typical description. Stacy did not have long hair. She did not have dark hair. So the women who had been changing their hair and doing all of this to avoid like being this, I guess, sore thumb sticking out, yeah. were even more scared because now it doesn't matter that they've cut their hair. It doesn't matter that they've dyed it blonde. It doesn't matter that they're sitting with someone that they feel safe with. Berkowitz doesn't care. So he's going to go for it no matter what. And that adds a major level of fear. Because now there's no idea what he's looking for. He just wants to shoot. He changed his freaking MO. Mm-hmm. So luckily, I guess, there were witnesses to this shooting as well. And they were able to give descriptions. What's interesting to me about about what the witnesses were able to say about the man that they had seen was that one of the witnesses said the man looked like he was wearing a wig. It didn't look, it wasn't like a super unnatural wig. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary in terms of wigs, I guess. It wasn't like a clown wig. But it was just enough that it seemed off. And there was a theory based on this that the varying descriptions of suspects, because people had described long hair, short hair, dark hair, light hair, but the build was always the same, mm-hmm. because you can't change that, really, um, and make it look super accurate. They thought that maybe this whole time, Berkowitz had been wearing a wig. 
Wow. And a disguise wouldn't be out of the ordinary, because if you'll remember, he went up to a girl, to the girls on the porch in military mm. fatigues and changed his voice. So like it, the freak he is. Exactly. So it wouldn't be super out of the ordinary to think that maybe he's been trying to hide his identity. Mm-hmm. Several other witnesses saw a man matching Berkowitz's description, also mentioning the wig, driving a yellow car. If mm-hmm. you will remember. I do. Donna's father said that he saw a yellow car casing the neighborhood with a man matching Berkowitz's description driving the car before the shooting of his daughter. Police were like, ah, I remember that. Gotcha. So they decided to investigate the owners of any yellow cars matching that description. It very much gave me the vibes of, like, the Ted Bundy thing, where they were like, Mm -hmm. okay, you said it was a Volkswagen bug? Find all of them. But in this case, it was just yellow cars, which does not narrow it down a lot. But David Berkowitz's car was one of those cars. Now, this is what makes me mad, is that investigators interviewed him and pegged him as a witness rather than a suspect. They were like, nah, this guy doesn't know anything. Weird. Until August 10th of 1977. So, not a month, but a few weeks before anything goes on. Too long. Too long. You don't know what he could have done. In that time period. But anyway, August 10th rolls around. Police finally were like, okay, let's search this guy's car. Because I guess we might have to search it. What do they find inside? What do you think they found inside, Jay? Something incriminating. Lots of incriminating things. A gun, perhaps. They found a rifle. They found a duffel bag full of ammo. They found maps of the crime scenes. All of them. Oh. And... They found an unsent Son of Sam letter addressed to Sergeant Dowd of the task force assigned to the Son of Sam case. By golly. (laughs) I wonder if that might be the guy. Hmm. So, and this, this is what I hate. This is not a police fault. It's a fault of the justice system. Mm-hmm. But they didn't consider that, like, the... The system didn't consider that probable cause, so they needed a warrant to go to his apartment and arrest him. Because they searched his car without a warrant. Oh. So, faults, oopsies on them, but, like, uh, this, and this, I'm going to rant for a second, because finding stuff like that should negate everything else. If you find stuff like that in a murder case... You should be able to just go up and be like, what the fuck are you doing? You're going to jail now. But if you look at any court of law, they could have very easily used that as a huge power move and said that none of the information they found was found in a legal matter, so it can't be shown in a court of law. If this had been one murder, the likelihood that they would have pulled shit like that and said, well... Just because you, like, the way you found it is not admissible in court, we Mm -hmm. can't charge him with anything. Like, that was a big risk for the police to go through his car without a warrant. Mm -hmm. Because all of that could have been thrown away. Oh, that's, that's, 
So they made the decision to try and obtain a warrant before they went to his apartment for the arrest. That warrant never showed up, and they didn't want to wait. So by the time they saw David leaving his apartment, they surrounded him and his vehicle, and he was holding a forty-four caliber bulldog in a paper bag. Guilty. <coughs> mm-hmm. So as he was being arrested, it supposedly famously passed around that he told the police, well, you got me. How come it took you such a long time? Oh. Which, what a big fucking slap in the face. Oh, I am not for police brutality, but when someone is as <laughs> oh smug of a shit as that, oh, just, just kill him. Anyway, sorry, that's my own anger coming out. So when they searched his apartment, they arrested him, they got him out. They were finally able to search his apartment. They found a bunch of satanic graffiti drawn on the walls. They found diaries detailing all of his crimes, including 1,400 arsons in, oh, yeah. in and around New York. Which, remember, he was really big into pyromania as a kid. So yeah. it's not a shock to anybody. He confessed to everything and said he would plead guilty. There was no contest. Um, and when they asked what his motivation was... This, I'll never... uh. He said that his former neighbor, a man named Sam Carr, had a dog that was possessed by a demon (laughs) that told David to kill. (laughs) Sam was that same Sam that inspired his own nickname, the Son of Sam. So the Son of Sam was a dog that was apparently speaking to Berkowitz... (laughs) and telling him that he needed to murder people. What the fuck? Hey, bro, that's kind of (laughs) crazy. That's no judgment. Like, everybody's able to believe what they want to believe. However, what the fuck? (laughs) Interestingly enough, After his arrest and after everything was processed, I mean, David obviously got a lot of media attention. This was a big thing. And he involved Mm -hmm. the media himself, so he wasn't shying away from anything. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison for each murder. So he was... Mm. He's set. He's not getting out. And he was sentenced to... The crimes, I guess. Sentenced to the crimes in guilty. New York's Supermax prison, the Attica Correctional Facility, which is a terrifying place if you looked into that. Jails freak me out. Not. Personally, I have not, but... I recommend it. I will not go into it um, because we'll be here for another hour, but okay. jails, like prisons terrify me, man. Anyway, so in February of 1979, Berkowitz held a press conference because he's a piece of shit that needs attention on him at all times. And apparently, we give it to him. He stated that his claims about demonic possession were a hoax. Like, none of that was real. He just wanted to seem crazy so that it would get him a lighter sentence. In March of 1979, 
he sent a letter to his court-appointed psychiatrist because they were like, hey, this guy's fucking crazy. So Dr. David Abra- Ab- Abrahamson... <laughs> I don't know why that was so difficult to say. (laughs) Yeah. Dr. David got a letter from Berkowitz claiming it was all, quote, all a hoax, a silly hoax. There's nothing silly. Okay. That's not, that's not a joke. (laughs) We come up with silly hoaxes to each other all the time. Like we'll randomly be like, huh, did you hear what happened today? And then we'll be like, just kidding. That's a silly hoax. I've never been like. Oh my god, I was so quirky today. I shot three people. Because my neighbor's dog told me to. You'd be like, get some help. I would call the police immediately. <laughs> um, he also said that he had been part of a violent cult that helped him carry out the murders. And that fellow cult members, John and Michael Carr, who were the actual sons of Sam, had assisted mm-hmm. him. Um, what's interesting about this in terms of law that, like, I was quite fascinated by was that he's doing all these press conferences. He's, like, talking to people, doing interviews, talking to people, selling book deals. And you would think that he'd been paid substantial sums of money, like, ridiculous Mm -hmm. amount of money. And that's so fucked up. To think that he's profiting off of these crimes. Not that he can really do much with the money because he's in prison. But still. So because of the way that the Berkowitz situation was handled with the media, with the press coming in and out, nearly all the states, particularly including New York, have laws that are colloquially, colloquially known as the Son of Sam laws. That yeah. prevent convicted criminals from profiting off of books, movies. Should have been anything. a thing in the first place. It but. should have been. But there's always there's always gotta be one thing that pushes it over the edge. Unfortunately, it was the son of Sam, but also fortunately, because it means that from that point on, there's no financial profit for criminals, which is the mm-hmm. way it should be. So if we think of something like the Son of Sam documentary that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode. Berkowitz doesn't make shit from that. Yeah. Nor should he. Good. But that was going forward. Anything related to a crime, like the Dahmer documentary, anything that they mentioned with Ted Bundy, like families don't make money off of it. None of that goes towards financially profiting from the crime itself. Mm -hmm. With that being said, I think... With the Dahmer documentary, I think the families of the victims should have made some fucking money from that. But that's a whole yes. other story. And I think that's bullshit that Netflix handled it the way that they did. But the criminals mm-hmm. themselves should not make any money. Berkowitz also said to this psychiatrist that the reason he was lashing out like a fucking baby <laughs> was because he felt rejected by women. He felt like the world was against him, and it had rejected him. Oh, poor baby. And that he was lashing out against attractive women because they wouldn't love him. Which is bullshit. That's like, in life... (laughs) Get over it. Talking to anyone, you are going to get rejected. Like... No matter what. It's... 
it happens. Sometimes it's not even your fault. I cry about it sometimes, but I don't kill people. Exactly. You do not go and murder people because someone doesn't love you. That's fucked up. Like, I just, I get so angry when people give excuses like this. And it's always, my favorite quote I've ever seen is that it's not all men, but it's somehow always a man. And this is a prime example of that. Like, oh, boo-hoo. You couldn't get laid. Get over it. Like. And did you see that one where it was like, statistically speaking, a woman is more safe alone in a room with a trained grizzly bear than a man? And then the person was like, yeah, because the bear is trained not to hurt you. Boomtown. And she was like, yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. What about the men? (laughs) I would 1000% feel safer with a bear. Just give me a hug, bro. Man, ew. Stay on the other side of the room. Do not hug me. (laughs) Do not touch me. But anyway, that was his reasoning after he was like, no, just kidding, I wasn't possessed by demons. (laughs) Okay, David, whatever you say. So in 1990, he was moved from Attica Correctional Facility to Sullivan Correctional Facility, which is where he remains today. Mm. I actually have something to say about that if you want. Please. Um, I've done nothing but talk this entire time. Please. It's fine. You you did most of the research. I was so excited about it. Um, did you talk about his parole? I did not. Good. He okay. has been denied parole since 2002 every two years. And that feels really good. <laughs> I just, I can't. Because at that point, it's been like, what, 10 times? Oh. 12? The last like, thing I read in 2018, he would be eligible for parole for the 16th time. <laughs> but how... How delusional... <laughs> I mean, clearly this is a delusional man. Yeah. Based on his existence. But how delusional do you have to be to think that you have gotten 25 years to life for six, seven separate crimes, and you're mm-hmm. going to even bother applying for parole? You think the parole board is going to be like, ah, yeah, Berkowitz has shown better behavior. We'll let him out on the streets. Mm. Are you kidding me? I mean, I have some more bad news than on that vein. I don't know if you know about it. Um, he did an interview with Larry King on CNN. Did you know that? I think I did. Okay, so I was just going to let you know he did an interview with Larry King where he told him that he was working with his fellow inmates and that he actually works in the mental health unit. Suck a dick. Doing inter- intermediate care programs. Suck a cock. And he like quote unquote says, I'm there as like a peer counselor for the men that have emotional problems Every oh, morning, great. Monday through Friday, I go over there to work with these guys. Great. And it's really a challenge, and I enjoy doing that very much. It's in an unofficial capacity. I'm of kind of like is. a combination chaplain, counselor, guidance counselor, and a friend. Unquote. Of Obviously. Course, of course it's... Who is going to get They're not going to hire you because gonna, you're crazy. Who on the American Psychological Association is going to look at David Berkowitz and say, yeah, here's a license, counsel these other inmates. 
you know what? You should be in our mental health when unit. I, you should counsel these other guys. Just don't I, mention your murders. When I say that men need to go to therapy, that's just not what I mean. <laughs> they need to meet with a real... They need to talk to a woman. A female not psychologist. Not entertaining other guys. Mm. Being like, if you do more push-ups... <sighs> Who is you letting, won't have feelings. <laughs> who is letting David Berkowitz counsel people? You know, that might just be a delusion of grandeur, because he might just be full of it. I... Because I don't really believe him. Could implode at the thought of that. Oh, man. And also, apparently, he was having health issues. Did you talk about that? I <coughs> didn't talk about it, but yes, so... Did you want to mention it? Yeah, so... Go for it. In December of 2017... He, um, actually, I was wrong before. I will correct myself. He is no longer at the Sullivan Correctional Facility. He is at one called the Shawangunk <laughs> Correctional Facility in Wallkill, New York. Shawangunk. Why does New York have the wildest names for everything? Anyway. Hey, I lived in a place called Lower Sackville. I can't say anything. Yeah. Anyway, so he had been transferred from Shawangunk. To a nearby hospital, um, officers from the correctional facility wouldn't give specific medical details, but the New York Post and a newspaper from Albany, New York, reported that he was set to undergo heart surgery, um, which unfortunately did not go wrong. Um, In February of 2018, so about two months after this supposed heart surgery or at least consultation for the heart surgery uh the new york post reported that david had a heart attack prior to his first surgery in december uh and then in late january he had to undergo more treatment and return to the hospital after complications this does not seem to have gone anywhere worse for him uh unfortunately but Mm. karma's a bitch so (laughs) we'll see but as of now, he is still in prison, um, still doing his thing. But yeah, as as far as we know, he's still rotting in a prison cell. He's in his Good. 60s, which feels Good. not old enough, but also this stuff only happened in the 70s, so. Yeah. Anyway, uh, long story short, David Berkowitz is a piece of shit, and... Thanks for coming to our TED Talk. Yeah, I will take a step off my soapbox now. If someone could take it away from me, that'd be sick. See? Yeah, you've been up there for a while. I go go one episode without saying anything and let you have a solo show, and then the next two, I can't stop talking. I'm so scared to one day do Dyatlov Pass with you. I'm not going to get a word in inchwise. No, you're and not. even even without me talking, it's gonna be like a three hour episode for you. So okay, you know how Zombies was a three part series. Diet Love Pass is gonna be four four or five parts of me just talking. I'm scared. I'm I won't have to do any research for that. No, I won't even have to do research. It's all in my head already. <laughs> oh God, that's crazy. <laughs> I love it so much. Not the death of the hiker. Anyway, we'll talk about Diet Love Pass another. Day. We gotta leave. <laughs> we gotta stop. <laughs> Anyway, Jamie, do you have anything to say about the son of Sam? Um, I think the name he came up with is really stupid. And that he's stupid. What a solid burn. 
You and really, then I bet he smells like B.O. You really got him there. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. I agree. I concur. This has to be put as an explicit rating now because yeah. of all that. From a serial perspective, it's interesting to look at how psychopathy can be indicated. Mm. It's interesting to look at the nature versus nurture of the situation because clearly nature had a lot more of a role in a case like the son of Sam. Well, like people will argue that, you know, his mother's untimely death would affect him and stuff. Mm -hmm. Of course, but also he was lighting fires and being bad way before then. Exactly. And I like this is a prime example of like, yeah, he probably would have had an easier time if he wasn't adopted or he would have had an easier time if his mother hadn't passed away, if he had had a better relationship with his father. But there are plenty of people, even friend, like mutual friends that we have that have had similar situations where parents have passed away or maybe home life isn't as great as it could have been. Yeah. But they don't turn out to be serial killers. Like, there's some they level of... They just have trust of... issues or something. Exactly. And that's a normal <laughs> response. The normal response is not to take out all of your anger on the fact that women are not attracted to you and that you didn't have a good relationship with your mother. Like, the normal response is not to take that out on a bunch of random strangers. Like, it's... Yeah. It's fascinating from a psychological standpoint to see how much of inherent behavior is present and what is going to affect that in the future. And it's unfortunate to think that people like David Berkowitz... It sounds bad to say are not dead because well and this is this is i'm gonna rant a little bit i have to cover my cat's ears (laughs) well like i fervently do not believe in the death penalty i don't think that's a solid solution for anybody but it's almost like a slap in the face to the victims of these crimes to think that Mm. someone like david berkowitz is fucking counseling other criminals like acting like such a big guy he's getting book deals he's getting movie deals all of this shit for what? For being a piece of shit? Like, yeah, he's stuck in prison for the rest of his life. Yeah, he's been denied parole 16 times. But the fact that he's still able to live a life where clearly he is unaffected emotionally by what he's done. Yeah. He hasn't learned any lessons. He's still kicking around, acting like he's the best thing that's ever happened. And everyone else is the problem. Maybe just, like, obviously, death penalty, controversial. Mm-hmm. You could just, like, throw him in, like, a different prison. Like, maybe, like, the worst one in Russia. Put him in a snake pit. Or, like... Send them all to the gulag. Put him in the prison in Cyprus that's Mm. got the really bad reputation. Mm. Just somewhere that he's going to experience some hardships. Exactly. Because it's... (laughs) Also, shout out to our Cyprus listener. (laughs) We love you. We're so confused, but we're so Are you in prison? Let us know. Email us Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Coffee at gmail.com. Email us there. <laughs> Let us know what the Cypress prison is like. <laughs> anyway. Um, but my only... The last thing I'll say is, like... Prison is built for rehabilitation. And there's some people that cannot be rehabilitated into society. It will never happen. It will never work. And David Berkowitz is a prime example of one of those people. And I think... It's shitty to think that even now, 
even as we record this, he's kicking around doing whatever, completely unfazed by the fact that he's ruined so many lives. And like, that makes me so angry. But anyway, that's my two cents on this. I hope he hears it. Fuck yeah. You. <laughs> Boom. I don't know. We gotta go. We gotta go. Well, I have to stop talking. Anyway. Okay. Thank you for coming along with this journey, uh, coming along on this journey with us, with Thanks me for specifically. Coming. <laughs> um, J- Jamie, thank you for coming along. I was asleep through half of it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I really enjoy the true crime cases that we're able to cover. Um, if you would like to hear more of them, please let us know. Let us know what other kinds of stories you'd like to hear. Um, you can get in touch with us, just like our Cypress listener, um, <laughs> at our email, which is creepsandcoffee at gmail.com. You On can... your hidden cell phone that you put up your butt? Yes. It, well, ouch. I don't know. For security? Not, a, not an opportune shape to go up there, hey? I mean, maybe if it's a flip phone. Not that you can you know what? email people on flip phones. Hmm. You have to. You can. When that flip phone comes out of your butthole, you let us know, okay? <laughs> anyway, you can also follow us. This is the most ridiculous episode. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Creeps and Coffee. Our Instagram we use significantly more. Every time I mention our Twitter, I forget that we have one. I forgot about it, too. <laughs> or you can follow along with That's our why journey. we only have 14 followers on Twitter. Yeah, but one of them is the writer of the Mothman Prophecies, so... That's cool. I've never been so maybe proud of Maybe follow us on life. Twitter. Yeah. Join Rich Haddam, and maybe we'll be able to get him on the show one day, because that man is my idol. Yeah. Anyway. Um, and if you would like to help support the show and follow along and get some... Not, I was gonna say private updates, but that sounds Ooh. sounds shady or sexy. Who knows? Do you want to see our privates? You know? <laughs> <laughs> You're not allowed to cut that out. That's the best thing you've ever said. <laughs> you can follow along on our Buy Me a Coffee page, which is <laughs> buymeacoffee.com slash creeps and coffee. Apparently, there's an OnlyFans coming soon. We'll see. <laughs> I don't know. We will chat with you guys next time. Bye. Goodbye. I love you. Love you too. (laughs) Creeps and Coffee is produced and edited by us, Kate and Jane. Our theme music is Stuck in a Hole by Dated. For more information on where to find them, check out the link in our show notes. And to connect with us, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Creeps and Coffee.